Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as part of the Silence and Solitude practice. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. That's right in the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible, there's a table of contents right at the beginning, 1 Kings chapter 19. If you missed last week, please circle back and listen to the podcast. We continue our series on practicing the way of Jesus. And kind of with the new year, we kicked off our first practice on silence and solitude, and I'm really looking forward to more of that tonight and then next week. To start off, let's have a look at this short clip from the modern-day prophet Louis C.K. I have this working theory that, pro- that comedians are the prophets of a secular society. Usually you hear it's the artist, it's the novelist, it's the filmmaker, and that's all true. But that list is a bit more PC and kind of, you know, vague and subtle, whereas a comedian, for the most part, goes right for the jugular. And they have this uncanny, like, knack to call out America on all of our problems and all of our issues and somehow get away with it. So Louis was in town um, Friday night. I don't know if anybody was there or if you're hopefully way too Christ-like for that. But this is actually a clip from a few years ago when he was on Conan, and it's on why he doesn't let his kids have cell phones. And don't worry, it's been edited a lot. The thing is, I, you need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing something. That's what the phones yes. are taking away, yes. is the ability to just sit there like this. That's being a person, right? Yes. <laughs> no one can, they gotta, uh, you gotta check. Because, there, you know, underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, forever empty. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> that, yes. Yes. Yes, I, yes. Yes, Just I know that, what you're talking about. knowledge that it's all for nothing and you're alone. You know, it's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching it, you're in your car and you start going, oh, no, here it comes that I am alone. Like it starts to visit on you. You know, just the sadness. Yes. Life is tremendously sad just by, you know, being in it. And so you're driving and then you go, uh, that's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of people driving are texting. Yes. And they're killing, everybody's murdering each other with their cars. Yes. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so hard. I was in my car one time and a Bruce Springsteen song comes on. And it made me really sad. It's like Jungle, what was the one? Jungle song? Jungle Land. Jungle, this one where he goes, hurry! And he sounds far away. You know, I was like, that's, 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 half, that's half of them. Yeah, that's a lot of them. And I heard it, and it gave me kind of like a fall back to school depression feeling. It made me really sad. Yeah. And I go, okay, I'm getting sad. I've got to get the phone and write hi to like 50 people. <laughs> anyway, I started to get that sad feeling, and I was reaching for the phone, and I said, you know what, don't. Just be sad. Just let the sadness mm-hmm. stand in the way of it and let it hit you like a truck. <laughs> and I f- let it come and bruise, and I pulled over and I just cried. I cried so much, and, I, and it was beautiful. It was like this beautiful, it's just this, sadness is poetic. You're, you're lucky to live sad moments. And then I had happy feelings, because when you let yourself feel sad, yes. your body has like antibodies. It has happiness that comes. <laughs> rushing in. Rushing in to meet the sadness. So you're, I was grateful to feel sad, and then I met it with true, profound happiness. It was such a trip, you know? And the thing is, because we don't want that first bit of sad, you never feel completely sad or completely happy. You right. just feel kind of satisfied with your product. Yes. <laughs> and then you die. <laughs> so that's why I don't want to get a phone for my kids. That's what I'm <laughs> Oh my gosh, that is so good. Louis is getting at two really key ideas here. The first is that as human beings, we feel. To be human is to be an emotional creature, and at times we feel deeply, and not all of those emotions are positive. Even when life for the most part is good, there is an undercurrent below all of it of sadness, what 
he calls the forever empty, that knowledge that it's all for nothing and you're alone. Now, yes, you and I, as a fo- if you're a follower of Jesus, that's not really true. It's not all for nothing. We have meaning. We have purpose. We're not alone. We have each other in the family of God. And more than anything, we have life with God. But still, even for us, there is a sadness. Henry Nouwen, that master apprentice of Jesus um, from the last century, I've just been reading a lot of his stuff lately, he writes this, Our life is a short time in expectation, a time in which sadness and joy kiss each other at every moment. There is a quality of sadness that pervades all the moments of our life. It seems that there is no such thing as clear-cut, pure joy, but that even in the happiest moments of our existence, we sense a tinge of sadness. In every satisfaction, there is an awareness of its limitations. In every success, there is a fear of jealousy. Behind every smile, there is a tear. In every embrace, there is loneliness. In every friendship, distance. But this intimate experience in which every bit of life is touched by a bit of death can point us forward in expectation to the day when our hearts will be filled with perfect joy, a joy that no one shall take away from us. He's saying that even as a follower of Jesus, and even if your life is good, on this side of resurrection, you never escape sadness all the way. It's there below the surface of your life. The other thing that Louis is getting at is that the human condition is bent to do everything it can to avoid feeling that sadness. Am I right? Which means the vast majority of us avoid silence and solitude at all costs. Because here's what happens, like here's the template. You're going through life at 90 miles per hour, you have an appendage known as an iPhone, you're in school, you're working a job, you have a family, you have a spouse or a fiance, whatever, you're just going through 90 miles per hour, you're hyped up on the drug of accomplishment and accumulation and your Twitter feed and busyness and life in the city and a night out with friends, and then all of a sudden, finally, you set aside intentional time in the quiet to be alone with yourself and God. That's our working definition of silence and solitude. Intentional time alone in the quiet to be with yourself and God, and you put it on your iCal, and you get there, and you take a deep breath, and you're, yes, finally, I'm here, and you slow down, and all of the sudden, all sorts of emotions that have been frantically trying to catch up with you for who knows how long start to haunt you and start to rise to the surface of your heart, and you are exposed for who you really are, and where you're really at. It's your finger on the pulse kind of moment. Did that happen to any of you this last week? I'm, I'm guessing the answer is yes. You're looking forward to the practice. You get together with your Bridgetown community for your weekly meal. You chat through that practice. Oh, this sounds so fun. You schedule it into your iCal. You get there. You do your little breathing exercise. You invite the Holy Spirit. You have your moment. And then did any of you start to feel an array of emotions that you were not expecting, and one or two or three or 20 of them were not really fun to do. Ooh, where did that come from? Oh, what about that? And you were exposed. If that was your felt experience, and you're thinking, am I doing something wrong? No, I don't know if it's 10% of you or 90% of you, but you are not alone. And I just wanna press into that tonight. I know it's a sensitive place, but I wanna go there together as a church. Most of us experience what the writer Ruth Haley Barton, and we're using her book as our recommended reading, her uh, work really inspired tonight's teaching. Most of us experience what she calls the push-pull phenomenon. On one hand, we feel pushed toward time alone with God, right? We just have this inner drive, this hunger and thirst, and this ache for God deep in the marrow of our bones because we're created for relationship with God. So we just, we feel pushed toward Him. But then on the other hand, we feel pulled away from Him, away from time alone with God, all sorts of forces inside us, fear, insecurity, all of that, and outside of us from our phone to Wi-Fi to the urban landscape, all conspired together to hold you and me back from silence and solitude. We live in the cross currents between these two forces. I want to see God. I don't want to see God. Push and pull. And I would argue the reason that so many of us give in to the pull, 
to our phone or to yet another activity or way too many yeses is fear. We're scared to be alone with ourselves and God. I mean, why is it that we always have to have NPR on in the car when we're driving? Or we always have to have Netflix? Why, why is it that we always have to have a podcast or music in on a run or a workout? Why, is it just because, ah, digital addiction, you know, it's like dopamine and your phone is like cocaine. Is it just that? I mean, that's true. Is it just, oh, I'm an extrovert, I'm the life of the party and I love the city. Is it, sure, but is it just that or is there something deeper? Could it be that we are scared to feel, to feel emotional pain, to feel sadness of any kind, or doubt about God, or questions, or to sit in uncertainty about the present or the future, or anger, or betrayal, or hurt. And honestly, I think that some of us are scared to be alone with God, because we're scared we'll get there, and we'll have very little relationship between us. I had this friend once, and I really liked the guy. We used to work together. I really liked working with him. Um, I looked forward to staff meeting with him each week. Just, I have nothing negative to say about him at all. But every time we were alone together, over coffee or in a meeting or whatever, it was so awkward. It's like we just, every time, it's like we had nothing to talk about. And maybe that's just because I'm introverted and socially awkward and was homeschooled for way too long. But I fake it pretty good, so I don't think so. It's like there just wasn't enough relational bandwidth for us to be alone together. I can't help but wonder how many of us feel that way about God. We really like God, really, or at least the idea of God. We really like being around God with a whole lot of other people at church. It's fantastic. Or being around God in a living room or around a table with our Bridgetown community. That's, that's great. But just me and God alone in the quiet? That's, that's scary, that's intimidating, that's too much. I'm not sure how I feel about that. What if you get there and you realize that your, quote, personal relationship with Jesus is more of a cliche than a reality? So, all sorts of fear. The question is, how do we work through all of that fear and through all of the emotions that rise to the surface and come out the other side into a new place of freedom? Well, that's where I think the story from the life of Elijah in 1 Kings 19 is a great place to start, because I think it does a great job of capturing this dynamic in story form, and it's a bit of a map for how to navigate what are, at times, the treacherous waters of silence and solitude. Now, a little bit of backstory before we read it. If you're new to the Bible, Elijah is a Hebrew prophet from the 9th century BC. He's living at a time when Israel is divided by civil war. You have two tribes down in the south called Judah that are still semi-faithful to Yahweh. But then you have 10 tribes up in the north that are not at all faithful to Yahweh. There's this petty, insecure king named Ahab. And really the crux of the problem is his wife is a um, Canaanite Baal worshiper, and she's basically a sociopath. And so all of the north is just a wreck, and Elijah is a prophet to the north, not to the south. So not a job you want at all. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah is coming off the high point of his career. Go back this week, read 1 Kings 18, dramatic story if you know it. Elijah calls um, for a three-year drought over land, and there's not a drop of rain for three years. Keep in mind, this is an agrarian society. You don't just like truck in an avocado from California. You're, it's a huge problem. At the end of three years, he calls all of Israel and King Ahab and the 450 prophets of Baal up on top of Mount Carmel, which was Baal's mountain. That was the high place for Baal. So he's essentially like, I want to pick a fight with Baal on Baal's home turf. I'm not a sports guy, but I'm told you, you, you want to play on your turf, right? It's a, it's a thing. Turf, is that what they call it? Okay, whatever. Moving on. So he's on Mount Carmel, and there's this dramatic story, if you know it. Elijah tells the prophets of Baal, you know, let's build an altar. You call for fire from heaven, and if it happens, your God is the real true God. Then I'll call for fire from heaven, and if it happens, my God is the one true God. The 415 prophets of Baal go crazy. Zip, zilch, nada. Then Elijah says, dig a trench around it, pour water on it. This is after a three-year drought. Water is a precious commodity. You're already in the Middle East. Once, then he does it again, then he does it again. One prayer, fire from heaven, the rest is history. 
Then he calls for rain and it starts to rain. So just miracle story. He's coming off the high point of his career. Then we read this. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. Now, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid, that can be translated scared to death, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, so that's down in the south, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. One minute, he's on a high. The next, he's scared to death and running for his life. Does this ever happen to you? In my house, we call it the crash. One minute, you're doing great. And yeah, life is good, and you're all hyped up on the drug of accomplishment and accumulation and your Twitter feed and this and go, go, go and activity and I live in the city and I, all of that. And all it takes is one text, one email from your boss, one comment from your mom or on your Instagram feed, one piece of bad news. All it takes is one thing to trigger some kind of an emotional meltdown. I don't know if that's just me and Elijah or if there are other people in the room. But Elijah is smart enough to realize, okay, what I really need right now is to say goodbye to my servant. He was all about community. But right now, I need to go into the wilderness, to the Aramos, if you were here last week. I need to sit down under the broom bush, and I need intentional time alone in the quiet with myself and God. And then the first thing he does is pray, but his prayer is one line long. It's essentially a suicide note. God, take my life. I don't want to live anymore. I'm done. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he falls asleep. Now, all at once, look at the second half of five. An angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals. This was way before he knew about paleo and gluten-free. And a jar of water he ate and drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey. It's too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. At the beginning of his experience in silence and solitude, um, there's very little prayer or Bible reading. He's just sleeping and eating and drinking water day after day after day. Now, strengthened by that food, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. He goes on a 40-day journey to Mount Horeb. Now, why is it called the mountain of God? Well, Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. And if you know the story of the Bible, you know that Mount Sinai was a place of encounter with God. It was a place where Moses encountered God in the burning bush at the foot of the mountain, where Moses and all of Israel encountered God at the top of the mountain in a cloud of thunder and fire and lightning and smoke. It was the place of the Ten Commandments, the place of the Torah, the place of the name of God, the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible, Exodus chapter 34, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, like that. It was a place of revelation. And Elijah, he goes day after day, week after week on a journey because he is desperate. He's at the end of his rope and he is hungry and he is thirsty to encounter God, to hear God speak over his life. Watch what happens. The word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Instead of an answer, he gets what? A question, how like God, if you know the story of the Bible. And what is that question? What are you doing here, Elijah? Put another way, where are you actually at? If you're brutally honest, right here and right now, what's underneath the surface of your life at a soul level? What are you doing here? He replied, look at 10, 
I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. He's just venting before God. It all comes out, like everything is there on the table. Doubt, frustration, are you kidding me? My whole life, my, all of my ministry, all of my mission, whatever you wanna call it, down the tubes, it's, no, it's not good for anything despair. He's just at a low point in his life. The Lord said, 11, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Take all of your emotions, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, in brutal honesty, and just stand in my presence. Just stand there. Let it wash over you. Then, and we don't know if this next part is a vision from God or if it's, you know, literal. It's beside the point. Just read it. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came what? A gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same question again, right? This is God's like, all right, let's take two, here we go. He replied, exact same answer, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. Same answer, but I can't help but wonder if it's in a very different tone this time around. Really, if it's more of a question than an answer. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu, meaning I'm going to deal with all of this. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, you know, like you do. And he himself was driving the 12th pair Elijah went up to him and he threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and become his servant. Now there's so much here. For tonight, I just wanna point out to you a seven-stage pattern that I see in the story. And when I say pattern, I mean pattern, not a formula. There's no like, you know, seven steps to whatever. All I see here is a pattern, and it's this. Resting, waiting, feeling, naming, hearing, being transformed, and re-entering society. I spent the last few weeks really reading and kind of rereading the story over and over again. And when I first, when that pattern started to emerge from line to line to line and paragraph to paragraph to paragraph, it really struck a chord in my own soul, in my own felt experience of silence and solitude. I'm guessing that it will do the same for you. I see this pattern in my morning quiet time, day after day. I see it in my weekly Sabbath. I see it in entire seasons of my life that stretch for weeks at a time or months at a time or even longer. First off, if you're taking notes, is this, resting, resting. Elijah gets to the broom bush in verse four, and the first thing he does, as I said, is pray, but it's a bit of a disaster. It's essentially a suicide note. He's so exhausted, like at the end of his rope, and he's so depressed that he can't even stay awake. Like Elijah, read the story. That dude knows how to pray really well. But all he has the capacity for is one crazy fatalistic prayer, and then he falls asleep. So then the angel comes, and notice, what does the angel say to Elijah? Get up, and he does not say get up and pray. Come on, Elijah, you're here, you're out in the wilderness, like get up and pray. No, instead he says what? Get up and Get up and what? Eat. 
And then he comes back later. Elijah, get up and eat and drink. You need to rest. And that's all he does for a few days, if not longer. Sleep, eat, hydrate, repeat. Sleep, eat, hydrate, repeat. Does this ever happen to you? You set aside time for silence and solitude, and you get there, and you try to pray, you try to read your Bible, you try to hear from God, but either you're so exhausted that you fall asleep, or you're such an emotional train wreck that you just fall apart, and you don't really hear much of anything from God. I think that a lot of us live with a low-grade fatigue, if not exhaustion, that rarely, if ever, goes away. Life in the modern world, I think you would agree, is just exhausting. Life with the appendage that we call an iPhone, is that's tiring. Life if you're in school, if you have a job, if you're into your career, that's tiring. Life in the city, and I love the city, I'm committed to raising my family in an urban context, I love it, but it's tiring. If you're a mom or a dad, holy cow, that's beyond tiring, and great, but tiring. Life is, it just starts to wear you down. And so many of us are too tired to really pray, too tired to, even if God were to speak over our life, we would be too tired to receive much of it. Keep in mind, I mean, read Genesis about how, what it means to be a human being, how, how we were created from the dust, but then we read that God breathed into Adam the breath of life and he became a living being. To be human is to be an integrated, holistic being. You don't have a body, you are one. Your body, your soul, your mind, your imagination, your personality, it's all you. Meaning what? Meaning you can't separate your spiritual life, which is a phrase not really even used anywhere in the Bible, from your emotional life, from your physical life. All of it is interconnected. As Pete Scazzaro, the genius behind Emotionally Healthy Spirituality says, and we're huge fans of his work here, his tagline is, it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. My life is living proof of that. I, for one, can directly chart my desire to seek God along with my emotional and physical health. I mean, think about it. How many of you, like, you're down with the flu in the middle of winter, and you're on your bed with your bowl next to you, and you're just like, Father, pour out the Holy Spirit over my life. I mean, I do that, but I'm a pastor, so, you know. Or how many of you, at the end of a long, hard week, you're just bone marrow tired, and you get to your week, how many of you just wanna like fast all weekend and pray through the night and read Leviticus and a study Bible and like, I mean, I do, but I'm a pastor. Um, no, in fact, when we get overtired, we don't have enough energy to do what is truly life-giving, prayer. Reading the Bible, even Leviticus, yes. A walk to the park with your dog, a nice long conversation over coffee or a glass of wine with a good friend about what really matters. Instead, all we have energy for is escapist behavior, binge watching TV, overeating, over drinking, online shopping, dinking around on the internet or social media late at night, porn, all of that. Things that actually make us more tired and more depressed. We become easy prey for the tempter. One of the greatest dangers to apprenticeship to Jesus is the exhaustion that comes from an overbusy life. Let me say that again. One of the greatest dangers to apprenticeship to Jesus is the exhaustion that comes from an overbusy life. So at times, just like here in the story, the best thing you can do for your prayer life is go to bed early and not set your alarm the next day. Or take a Sabbath, or at least a day off, or go on a vacation. It doesn't have to be expensive, or just take time to rest and let your soul catch up to your body. I think about even my own practice of apprenticeship to Jesus. So um, Sabbath is a core practice in my emotional health, in my spiritual life, and the same is true for my wife and my family. And a few years ago, it was really tricky at first. Like when we first started to practice Sabbath, it sounds so easy, like set aside a day for rest and worship. It was actually, it was really tricky. But it really turned and changed for us when we started at night. So most of you I know Sabbath on Sunday, which is fantastic. I don't just because it's a long, hard, good work day for me. So we Sabbath um, Friday night to Saturday afternoon. And that switch to the night start made all the difference. And honestly, 
when I get to there, when I get to Friday night, after a very long work week, I have three kids that I love, that I'm raising, that are tiring. When I get to that moment, there's very little capacity in me to seek God. We read a psalm, we invite the Holy Spirit, we like say a few things we're grateful for. Honestly, we eat dinner and I climb into bed and read sci-fi and I turn out, I turned out the light I think at 9.15 this weekend. And I slept till like eight in the morning. It was glorious. Thinking, you're lazy. Yeah, and I'm rested. All that to say, it's not really till Saturday morning, which is technically like halfway through my Sabbath, when I actually start to have the capacity to pray, and I ache, and I want deep in my, I want more of God, I want to hear God's voice over my life, but it takes a while of just resting first. You, you see what I'm getting at here? Does that make sense at all to you? So this week, I think a good exercise for you in your practice is just chart yourself on the spectrum of good tired to dangerous tired. Good tired is like how you feel at the end of a long hard day of work or school or like that's healthy. If you get to the end, of your, you should fall asleep at night. Like if you're not, you're probably wasting your life on something. But dangerous tired is like, I remember um, in the months before my sabbatical a few years ago, which was a low point in my life, just out of nowhere, I would put the kids to bed every night and then I would plop down on the couch and I started to watch kung fu movies. Like full on subtitle, like, I don't know, I'd never watched kung fu movies before. I've never watched kung fu movies since. It was just a low point in my life, and that, that was my escape of it. It's better than porn or whatever, so it was like Ip Man or whatever. Okay, so if you ever hear of me like watching kung fu movies, you need to talk to the eldership and do an intervention over my life, because that means it's really bad again, okay? All that to say, plot yourself on the good tired, healthy tired, right kind of, to dangerous tired. If you were a doctor, what would you prescribe? Would you prescribe more prayer, more Bible, or would you say, yes, but first, more sleep, eat, drink, Sabbath, breathe, take time. So the first stage is resting, then moving on. After that is waiting. Elijah there in verse eight goes on a 40-day journey, remember he's on foot, okay, to encounter God. Now, he's already gone from the north down to Beersheba, which is in the south in Judah around Jerusalem. Then that next leg of the journey, according to Google Maps, is 260 miles, which, okay, that's 6.3 miles a day. If, say, you were to walk 12 hours a day, that's half a mile an hour. That is, I'm not a backpacker, or at least I, not anymore, but that's painfully slow, am I right? Now, 40, this is ancient literature, ancient Near Eastern literature, 40 days, 40 nights. That's just a way of saying a very long time. It's not necessarily literal. Still, the point is that is painfully slow, and he was not in a hurry. You could make that journey in a week or two if you're in good shape. 40 days, day after day, week after week, out in the desert, all alone, nothing else. And notice, does God speak over his life in this time? No, not a word. I mean, before he goes, there's the, you know, get up and eat. Like, that's it. But on that journey, there's no vision. There's no dream. There's no prophetic word from God. There's no encounter, nothing. There's just waiting. But notice, he's not waiting in the sense of, like, sitting around on the couch. Come on, God, speak over my life. <laughs> like, he, he's waiting on God. That's very different. He's in motion. There's an inertia toward God day after day, step after step, to Mount Horeb, to the mountain of God. The reality is that seeking God just takes time. That's why in our um, six-week practice that hopefully you're doing with your Bridgetown community right now, and if not, we invite you to step into that, to join a community and to practice the way. But it's why there's an optional six-week, and I know that a ton of you like, can't make it work, that's fine, no guilt trip at all. But that's why the last week is a retreat week, and we um, advocate that you take a day away, eight-hour chunk or more if you want. If you can't do that, whatever, four hours, two hours, whatever you can pull off. Why? Because there's something that happens at hour four, five, six, seven, eight, or a day in, or I can only imagine 40 days in, I have no clue, that, that just does not happen in 10 or 15 minutes before you rush out to door of the work. And don't hear me wrong, don't think, oh, that's so overwhelming, I'm new, I'm an extrovert, that's way out of my league, so just I throw out the whole baby with the bathwater. No, not at all. If all you can do is 10 or 15 minutes, great, start there. Ton of grace. 
But just know there's something that happens when you give it time. A good friend of mine, Todd, if you're listening to this podcast, I love you. He um, did a, I think it was two-week experiment a few years ago up in Alaska at a cabin where it was like a formal thing where you checked in and all you were allowed to truck into the cabin was food, your Bible, and a journal. Nothing else. No books, no computer, no other people. And I think every few days there was a meeting with the spiritual director. And that's all it was. I mean, even for me, I'm like off the charts Myers-Briggs introvert. And even to me, he was like, you should really do it. I'm like, no, I'm okay. Thank you. That's a long time with my Bible and my journal and Alaska. (laughs) But still, on a regular basis, it comes up in conversation. What a definitive moment that was in his life. There's, my point is there is something about waiting on God. Then third, if you're taking notes, is feeling. When God finally does speak, it's a question, what are you doing here, Elijah? And that question is the key to unlock a torrent of all sorts of emotions that have been bottled up inside Elijah. Doubt, frustration, disillusionment, depression like nobody's business, anger, fear, insecurity, it's all bottled up in there. So after resting and then waiting on God for 40 days, he's in a way better place. Like you notice the prayer is articulate. It's more than a line long. He's not suicidal anymore, but that guy is still pretty messed up. He is not in a healthy spot at all, but he's willing to sit in all of those emotions to do the Louis C.K. thing, to let it hit you like a truck. He's willing to sit there to be honest with himself and to be honest with God and to feel, but not alone, to feel with God. Not only that, but then fourth is, and this right here, this is the fulcrum point. Fourth is naming, resting, waiting, feeling, and then naming. Not only does Elijah have the courage to feel all sorts of emotional pain, but then he has the courage to name all that is going on under the surface of his heart in front of God. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The good, look again at verse 10. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Like I'm still here and faithful to you, God, and passionate for you. That's the good. The bad, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. Basically, my entire life's work is a disaster. Nobody is hearing me at all. All of Israel is apostate and then the ugly. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. First off, that's a lie. That's not true, and that's a bit egotistical, my friend. You're not the only one left. Actually, there's 7,000 people still out there, but there's a deeper meaning here. The implication is, God, I want out. I'm done. I don't want to be a prophet anymore. Nobody's hearing me. Can you blame him? I don't want this life. I did not sign up for failure after failure after failure. Like, I want your best life now. Come on. That was a 90s reference. Don't worry about it. (laughs) I'm I'm out. I quit. I, I don't want it anymore. Sheesh, can you imagine how scary that must have been to be that honest with yourself, much less with God? Again, Henry Nouwen writes this. Solitude is not a private therapeutic place. So pause there, just, you know, this week we did a breathing prayer and I'm all for that, but silence and solitude are not just like mindfulness with the little Jesus on the side. Like, oh, feel happy. Like, yes, that's in there, I'm all for it. But it's not a private therapeutic place. Rather, it is the place of conversion the place where the old self dies and the new self is born. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding, no friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make. This was written in the 80s, back when you used that appendage to call people. No meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract, just me, naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. It is this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude, a nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. But that is not all. 
As soon as I decide to stay in my solitude, confusing ideas, disturbing images, wild fantasies, and weird associations jump about in my mind like monkeys in a banana tree. Anger and greed begin to show their ugly faces. I give long, hostile speeches to my enemies and dream lustful dreams in which I am wealthy, influential, and very attractive, or poor, ugly, and in need of immediate consolation. Thus I try again to run from the dark abyss of my nothingness and restore my false self in all of its glory, vainglory. Some of you are thinking, dude, I am never going anywhere near silence and solitude. If you were going for inspiration, you lost me at the dark abyss of my nothingness. <laughs> Man, I love how brutally honest he is. Can anybody relate to this or is it just me? If it's just me, I'm in good company with like Henry Nowen and Elijah, so I'm okay with that. Monkeys in a banana tree, at least that part. Like you have this image of like the Zen Buddhist version of the Jesus disciple, just in silence and solitude and the perma smile. But in reality, it's a place of encounter. And that means a place of change and transformation. So I know a lot of people just don't wanna go there. Don't wanna deal with it. Don't wanna let yourself feel, much less actually sit in that with God and yourself. But here's the thing. All of that stuff is under the surface of your life already. It's not going anywhere. Pretend all you want, ignore it, distract yourself, play on your phone, go out another, but it's still there under the surface. And if you do not deal with it in a healthy way, it will leak out in an unhealthy way. It will leak out in your life. It will leak out in relationship after relationship. It will sabotage marriage, trust, community, your reputation at work. It will leak out in your sexuality. It will leak out in your money. And it will leak out in some part of your life. It will leak out in your sense of humor that you think because, oh, I'm sarcastic. No, you're a jerk. I said to myself, it will leak out. Trust me, I know from experience. You have to deal with it. The question is, is there a safe place to deal with our crap? And the answer is yes, and more than anything, it's intentional time in the alone, in the quiet, with ourself, and with God, where you take it all out, you put it on the table, the good, the bad, the ugly, and from that place, you start to experience freedom. We have to do this if we want to encounter God. This is the defining moment for Elijah. It's in this act of brutal honesty that is the key to unlock hearing God's voice and then being transformed. That's why I love the story of Elijah. That's why he is a pattern, a map forward. Because either he's not afraid to be alone with God or he has more courage than fear. Either way, he goes there because for Elijah, God is not something to run from but someone to run to. God is a safe place to deal with everything on the surface and under the surface of your life. For tonight, there's just one simple idea that I'm driving to, and it's this. If you're anything like me, you wanna skip right to number five. Am I alone in that? It's like, God, good morning, here I am, I set aside time, it's like, great, I have my Evernote out, or like my $35 moleskin and my like, thing, hi, great. Okay, what do you have to say? Come on, great, okay, thank you. Ooh, that's tweetable, fantastic. Ooh, great, oh, quick, hashtag silence, solitude. Um, great, it doesn't count, by the way. Um, great, ooh, that's, oh, yeah, that, 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 that will work for Sunday's teaching, great. Thank you, okay, awesome. Transform me, Holy Spirit, come. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was great, awesome. Back to work. It's a caricature, but is there anything? Yeah, I just wanna skip right to the good part. It doesn't work that way. You have to go through the process of resting. You're an integrated, holistic being. You have to let your soul catch up of waiting on God, maybe for a few minutes, maybe for a few months, of feeling all of it, of naming that. That's the defining moment. And then hearing from God and being transformed and reentering society. 
You know, I was so looking forward to um, this kind of mini-series in Silence and Solitude because if you know me, like, I love this. And uh, there is a set of practices that define my apprenticeship to Jesus that I love, Sabbath and community and Sunday church and generosity, but really at the top of the list of where I find life with God is silence and solitude. And I've been so looking forward to this just because I wanna invite you into this experience. I'm like, if, if, there, if, if you're asking like, does this pastor have like an agenda? Absolutely. I want you to be with Jesus, become like him and do what he did. That's my agenda for your life. I want you to wake up in the morning and experience what Jesus called abiding in the vine. I, that means you, I want you to slow your life down. I want you to order your life around the practices of Jesus, the way or the lifestyle of Jesus. And I want you to experience what Jesus experienced, what myself and a number of us are just starting to experience, life with God 24-7. It's the best part about following Jesus is Jesus. I want that for you. I want that for me. So I was so looking forward to this week, but honestly, I had such a lousy week. So um, I don't talk about this a lot, but some of you know that my wife has had chronic health issues. We don't say a lot about it, not because we're not open or honest, but just my wife is a trooper and it's a long time. Uh, she had Lyme disease as a child, was hospitalized, and as best we can tell, it just did permanent damage to her nervous system, and she was okay until her first child, and then for the last 10 or 11 years, it's been kind of on again, off again, chronic health stuff. But for the most part, quality of life, you know, is a pain, but it's like all manageable. But in the last year, it's just started to get worse and not better in spite of diet, exercise, medicine, all of that. And so that's discouraging, especially for her, and then a few weeks before Christmas, she started to have, we actually don't know what they are, either some kind of a seizure or some kind of an eye spasm, we're not really sure what's going on. And some, a whole like array of about a half a dozen new, and honestly, at least for us, scary neurological symptoms. All of which landed us um, at St. Vincent's Hospital on Monday for an MRI because one of the leading possibilities was a brain tumor. So we go in, you know, it's half of our day on Monday, and then if you've ever been through that, you're literally waiting by the foam. So like Tuesday morning, I did not even go for a run because like she said, I need you here. So we're waiting by the phone for a few days and then finally we get the call and it's good news, there's no brain tumor by the grace of God, but the test is inconclusive. So now it's more waiting and a neurologist and a spinal tap and, and stuff. And so she's okay, she, she's, she's okay, don't we? Have, we have so much love, so much support. I'm, scared to share this story because you're so loving and so supportive. I'm scared of like my inbox breaking tomorrow morning. We feel the love, we feel the support. I say this simply because, not to like vent with you, but simply because this week just exposed a lot of really ugly, nasty stuff in my heart. And so silence and solitude for me, I set aside an hour every morning and usually it's the highlight of my week or highlight of my day but it's like I was avoiding God in that time, even as I was reading my Bible or whatever. It's like I was just, I felt estranged from God. So I go out on this walk a day or two ago. I live in the Alphabet District, so I just walk a few blocks to Lower McClay Park, and if you've ever been there, you kind of hike up into Forest Park. And it's snowy and cold, and nobody's out there, and I'm just kind of on my thing, and I'm angry, and I'm upset, and I'm just moved by the Holy Spirit. So I'm like, you need to do, I just finished writing this teaching, you need to do this. Right now, you need to name it. I don't wanna name it, you need to name it. So I just, I stop right in the middle of the forest and out loud, cause there's something about, you know, and nobody was around, praise God. <laughs> and I just start to vent like to the forest and to God and I'm just, I must have looked crazy. And I just start to vent all of this stuff and just, it is scary for me to even, to say this stuff out loud. Even though I'm feeling it, I know it's there, God is, I'm pretty sure aware of it, but just to say it out loud was scary. And I just, all of it, I'm not gonna tell you what I said because I wanna wake up tomorrow morning with a job. Um, <laughs> honest, but not that honest. Um, so I just start to vent. It's just this moment of, of brutal honesty with God. And I wish I could say that in that moment, like the sky was rent open and there was a choir of angelic, like it was all there and the audible voice of God, I will make you rich and famous and awesome. And it's not the story. Actually, there was just a random runner on the trail that looked at me like I was really weird and went past me. But in that moment, that was the beginning of healing. 
of my relationship to Jesus because it was not at a good spot. It was in that moment that things started to change, and I'm still very much in process. I'd love for you to pray for my wife and I this week and in this season. All that to say, that is the defining moment. You have to be willing to go to that place and to meet God in that pain. I don't know where you're at tonight. Maybe you're coming off the best week of your life and you're on cloud nine. That's fantastic. And where you're at emotionally is wonder and awe and joy and delight and celebration and gratitude. Beautiful, meet God in that. Sing and sing loud tonight as we worship. Maybe you're coming off the week from hell and you're racked by doubt. I don't know if I even believe in God, much less Jesus. Or maybe you're so low, you don't even wanna go forward anymore. The key is wherever you're at to meet God in the place of pain. Most of us run as fast as we can away from emotional pain. In the West, in secular society in particular, to distraction. But the way of Jesus that we see, not only in the life of Elijah, but in the life of Jesus, is to run to that place and meet God there. And experience, in that moment of brutal honesty, experience the healing touch of the God who made you. So the invitation this week is just to do that. As part of our practice for the coming week, the idea is to ask yourself the Elijah question. What are you doing here, Elijah? But fill in your name. What are you doing here, John Mark? What are you doing here, Terry? What are you doing here, Emma? To ask that question, to answer that question honestly before God and with yourself, and to let God meet you there. In closing, Blaise Pascal, that 17th century mathematician and philosopher, and as most of you know, follower of Jesus, had that iconic line, you may or may not know it, but I love it. Quote, all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own room. I think Louis would agree with that. I think Elijah would agree with that. I think Jesus would agree with that, I don't know. But I think that if we have the courage to step into that place, to trust God, to move through that place of pain and of fear, I think on the other side, is a whole new reality of freedom and joy and healing and peace that's waiting for you in Jesus. Let's stand and pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running or resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.